Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. That was a great psalm we sang just a few moments ago, uh, Psalm 46. And I want to encourage you to read that psalm because next week for our Thanksgiving message, that will, will be our message from Psalm 46 and how it pertains to us, pertains to Israel, and pertains to Thanksgiving together. Well, as we uh, look at part two, finished a little short last week of the sermon, so we're going to finish up where we were last week and then continue on to finish out chapter two here of Galatians. If you have your outline, I just want to review and then we'll get to our scripture reading. We're talking about what is justification in God's sight? What does it mean for us to be justified in his sight? And I could just say this, that if we believe by Faith through grace that we've, or through, by faith in grace that Jesus Christ is our personal Savior, then that is how we're justified by faith. It's not by works. We could close the book and go home, but Paul goes in greater detail in helping us to understand how all this works. And so we're going to look at this in the detail of Paul this morning. So in your notes there, it says, What is justification from God's perspective? Well, John MacArthur says, Justification is God's declaring a sinner to be guiltless based on faith in him. It is a free and gracious act. Let me emphasize that. It's a free and gracious act by which God declares a sinner right with himself, forgiving, pardoning, restoring, and accepting him based on nothing, based on nothing but trust in the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So we turn to our scripture reading, and that's Galatians 2, 15 through 16 where we left off last week, Paul said, we ourselves, in verse 15, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. And let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray almost every Sunday that you would illumine our minds and our hearts with your Holy Spirit to be able to understand the inspired word of God. We thank you for this message from Paul. And Lord, I'm just merely the messenger, the conduit. We thank you for your word and may these words that I share Uh, be pleasing in your sight, but also be the words that you desire. We know there's many needs in this room. You know each one's heart. We pray that this message would touch people where they are and what their point of need is. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we said last week, justification is not given by God due to birth. And that application there was that God has no grandkids, but we're all sons and daughters if we put our trust in him alone for salvation. It's a decision that every human being who ever has lived and will live and is currently living is going to have to make. What do they do with this Son of God, Jesus Christ? Justification is not given by God due to righteous works in verse 16. And some of the points that we made last week, justification is an act of God. It is not the result of man's character or works. The Jews in other places in Scripture, we're saying, well, because I'm born into, by Abraham's seed, I must be a follower. And that's not true. Paul said you've got to 
have received that by faith. It's not a result of man's character. It's not a matter of our righteous works. Justification, the second point there, declares the believing sinner righteous. God doesn't make him righteous with this particular act of justification. We'll get there in a moment. But before the sinner trusts Christ, he stands guilty before God. But the moment he trusts Christ, he's declared not guilty, and he can never be called guilty again. Now, we said last week that justification doesn't make us righteous, but by God's act, when we believe for salvation, then God goes on and does another act. He imputes or gives us his righteousness. And this week, as I was reading a book, I came across this verse. Do you realize that this imputed righteousness, which simply means if I were to give you, if I were to have a million dollars in my bank account and I put it over into your bank account, it would become yours. It would be given to you. Do you realize it was prophesied in Isaiah 53, that great psalm of the suffering Messiah? In Psalm 53, 11, notice this, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge and shall the righteous one, my servant, and here's the prediction, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. We quoted 2 Corinthians 5, 21 last week, but here is a prediction of that imputed righteousness that's given to us. And justification is not the same as sanctification. We mentioned Romans 8, 29, and 30. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That's sanctification. That's making us more like Jesus. And then eventually, when we go to heaven, we receive the full glorification of the resurrected body that we have promised to us. Justification, another point there in your notes, is not simply forgiveness, but means you cannot be held guilty before God even when you sin. We know that we're going to continue to sin even though we are new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that. And our sin should grow less and less as we're dropping off habits, we're dropping off sin, and that new nature is taking more control, that we're letting Jesus have lordship of areas of our life. <clears throat> and God's not going to judge us at the judgment seat of Christ based on our sin because the stain of sin has already been removed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we finished last week with this great promise from Isaiah 1, come now. God says, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So that brings us to today's message. The next point you see there to fill in, justification means that God removes all sin from our record. It's not just a covering, it's a complete eradication of your sin. Justification is also different from pardon because a pardoned criminal still carries that record with him. When the sinner is justified by faith, his past sins are remembered against him no more. And God no longer puts his sins on record. Psalm 32, 1 and 2 say this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. <clears throat> it's a great illustration of justification here. There was a man who lived in England, and he bought a Rolls Royce. He was pretty well off. And he decided to uh, put it on a ferry and 
cross the English Channel and take it to the other countries of Europe for a, for a vacation, or as they say in England, a holiday, right? And so they were, he was over there, and he was driving around Europe and enjoying his time, and that Rolls-Royce gave out. It stopped running. So he contacted the dealer in England, and they promptly put a mechanic on an airplane and came to where he was and fixed his Rolls-Royce and flew back. Well, the rest of his vacation, he was wondering, well, what's going to be the bill? What's going to be the cost for this, right? Flying a mechanic, doing the work and all these things. So when he got back, he contacted the Rolls-Royce dealer, and they said, there's no record of us ever fixing a Rolls-Royce. That is justification. That is a picture of justification. And justification, next point there, is only available to people who are sinners and admit that they are sinners. Paul declares that God justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. The reason most sinners are not justified is because they're not willing to admit that they are sinners. And sinners are the only kind of people that Jesus Christ can save. One of the obstacles in sharing the gospel with people is that they do not want to admit that they're sinners. Another obstacle with people with whom you share the gospel with is they think that they're good enough. They're good enough to get into heaven. How could a loving God not let me in because of all the good things that I've done? But man must see their lost condition before they can be found by God. They must accept the diagnosis of the heart that they're sinners in need of a savior before they can be saved. So we see how important and how valuable the doctrine of justification is. Martin Luther said that if the article of justification by faith was lost, all Christian doctrine is lost. This doctrine of justification goes through, weaves through all the other Christian doctrines. It's the foundation. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So what's the summary of that verse? This is a strong affirmation. Paul and Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the Jewish believers. It says, we know, we have knowledge. But it's followed by a statement in the middle of that verse that says it isn't enough to know, but we believe that we experienced this firsthand for ourselves. And at the end of the verse, he says, because we know it, because we've experienced it, then he says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So as we conclude our discussion of these two verses, remember that Paul's argument was addressed to those who were Jews by birth, including Peter and himself, and despite their superior advantages as devout Jews, they were saved by faith and not by works of the law. Paul is saying to Peter, why then bind the law on Gentile sinners who likewise were saved by faith in Jesus Christ? Here's our application. If we cannot be rightly related to God, then all the other benefits found in Christian doctrine are lost. If we can't be rightly related, if we can't be justified, if he doesn't look at us just as if we've never sinned because of the blood of Christ and all the other benefits found in Christian doctrine are lost. Let's look now at the concluding verses of this chapter. 
where Paul defends his declaration of how justification works. As we keep saying, it's grace through faith that we are saved. It's grace through faith that we are saved. In Old Testament and New Testament, Christ followers alike. Look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Paul says, certainly not. The point there is justification by faith, grace through faith does not give a Christ follower a license to sin. Christ is not the promoter of sin because one is saved by grace. That was the Jewish legalist argument. Well, if you can be saved by grace alone, then you can just go out and do whatever you want because you've been declared righteous and you, you don't have to worry about anything else. God's going to forgive you. Verse 17 is speaking about these Jewish believers specifically, but to all believers generally. Conversion can be said to free us from the requirements of the law. From a Jewish perspective, one who does not keep the law is a sinner. And in a narrow sense, that word sinner there in the Greek means equals to without the law. But in Paul's view, the law cannot be completely obeyed and leads to transgression. Now, this does not mean Christ encourages sin by the broader definition. Ironically, the sinners or transgressions, which is a technical term for one who disobeys the law, we're still obligated to a law, but it's the law of Christ. Some parallel verses that go right here along with Galatians, Romans 6.1. What shall we say then, Paul said? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying, well, do you want to see more grace? Well, I guess the license is the more sin we get, the more of God's grace we'll see. And he says, no, that is wrong. This is what Paul's opponents argued. However, that since justification by faith eliminated the law and encouraged sinful living is what they were saying. And a person could believe in Christ for salvation and do as we please. But Paul hotly denied that charge, especially noting that this made Christ the promoter of sin. On the contrary, if a believer would return to the law after trusting Christ alone for salvation that law would only demonstrate that he was still a sinner, a lawbreaker. Though Paul used the first person here, he clearly had in mind Peter, because that's the conversation he was still having with him, and who by his very act of withdrawing from Gentile fellowship was returning to the law. But you see, you and I, we have a new law. When we came to faith in Christ and we received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, along with the word of God, you and I, we have the law of Christ. And grace and truth now prevails in this New Testament era or dispensation. And this is what is happening in the current time that God is working with the church and individual believers until he returns. The new law, the new covenant. You see, when we're justified, reconciled today by trusting in Christ, we're living under that New Testament or new covenant new law of Christ. And the commands of the Old Testament are no longer covenant requirements for the New Testament Christ followers. As believers in Christ, Jew and Gentile, we're not obligated to keep the law. Now, in a couple weeks or early next year, we're going to have a message on what is the New Testament believer's responsibility to, to the law, to the Pentateuch, to the things that are in the first five books of the Bible. There's three types of laws. There's the governing laws that we see given to the Israelites because they were a theocracy. 
And we're not in a theocracy today, so they don't apply to us. There are ceremonial laws. The priests were given very specific things to do with the sacrificial system and worship with the tabernacle and then on into the temple. We're not under that anymore. But then there's the moral law. We think of the Ten Commandments. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute because we do have some responsibility with that as well because the law of Christ gives us amplification of those moral laws. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy practicing the feasts and festivals. The Sabbath is optional for us as believers, and these things remind us of God's faithfulness in the past, and that these things in the law and the feasts and all that point us to Christ, who's the fulfillment of all those things. We've had Seder meals here in the past, for example. But this is brought up here because Peter at first destroyed the law by abandoning the food laws, remember in Acts 10, and could eat with the Gentiles, but later went back to the Jewish laws, attempting to rebuild them and separating himself from the Gentile believers. The next thing we see in verse 18 is that Christ wants us to die to self-righteousness. Christ wants us to die to self-righteousness. It says in verse 18 of Galatians 2, for if I, Paul says, rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul was showing, first of all, the hypocrisy of these Jews who had been eating with the Gentiles in the first part of Galatians 2, and then when the Jewish legalizers came down from Jerusalem, from the Jerusalem church, all of a sudden they felt like they needed to withdraw from the fellowship of the Gentile believers and stop eating with them. So if the Jewish believers thought that the ceremonial law of Moses saves in part, and keeping the Torah was necessary to maintain salvation, then even before the Judaizers came, Peter and Barnabas, withdrawing from fellowship with the Gentiles, they would have fallen back into the category of sinners. And then second of all, if you become a sinner, because you're fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters who were Gentile Christians, then Christ himself becomes a minister of sin. Because Christ said food, according to Jesus, does not contaminate the heart in Mark 7. Peter's vision in Acts 10 of the animals, all are clean, all are equal, Jew and Gentile believer alike. And Paul is saying if the Gentile legalists are right, Jesus is wrong because he taught falsely because Christ preached over and over again to believe in him in order to be saved, to be born again, as it says in John 3.3. Peter had, in effect, condemned Jesus by his actions of withdrawing from eating and fellowshipping with the Gentile believers. And Paul responds to his own question in verse 17, certainly not, may it never be. And in verse 18, Paul includes himself in this thought, if one rebuilds the system of the law, as a form of obtaining righteousness, I prove myself to just be a sinner, to be a hypocrite, to a sinner who abandoned grace for the law. Look at verse 19. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paralleling Romans 6, 3-4, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too 
might walk in newness of life, to have that new creation, the Holy Spirit, that new law of Christ dwelling within us. And we're going to see a very practical verse here in just a moment in Galatians 2.20, this emphasis of our dying with Christ, that he was our substitute, but we were vicariously there with him on the cross. And Jesus was our substitute for sin and payment for our sin, but the effects of what he did is ongoing in the life of each and every Christ follower. Our death, like Paul's death, was to try to follow and obey the law in our own power and ability. And God uses the Holy Spirit to write the law of Christ down into each person's soul. If we look at the New Testament, Jesus' life and his teachings in the Gospels, Christ's law goes above and beyond the Ten Commandments and the laws in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Old Testament. Think about it, in the Beatitudes, he said, you know, it's wrong to lust. He says, but I say, if you lust, it's the same as committing adultery. Remember when he said, it's wrong to hate, it's a sin. That's what the law says. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, it's the same as murder. So the law of Christ amplifies and expands on the law of the Old Testament. The prophet Ezekiel predicted a new heart that would come to the believer because of a future new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, he said, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. As a side note, the prophet Jeremiah predicted a new covenant in the future for Israel at the time of Christ's second return and his millennial reign in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. A new covenant for Israel as well. Paradoxically, though, you and I die to the law. The death of Christ produces real life. Notice verse 19, he says, when I die, I live to God. Christ lives in us now and not the law. We live in the flesh, but by faith. And then the next point there, Christ wants us to live by faith in the righteousness that is given to us at salvation. Paul turns the page and he's saying, now I'm gonna give you some very practical, everyday Monday through Saturday, ways to live this idea of being justified by faith. Look at Galatians 2.20. Many of you have heard this or memorized this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We, like Paul, should take this act of love that was demonstrated on the cross, take it personally and apply it to our lives as Paul does here in verse 20. This is justification in action. And I'll go back to Romans 6, 5 through 6 to finish up these parallel thoughts. These amplify what Galatians 2.20 says, for if we have been united with Christ in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So let's carefully for a few moments unpack verse 20. Notice it says, I am, I am. And uh, Dale, if you want to go back to that verse one back, that'd be good. We'll focus on that. Where it says Galatians 2.20, I am. I am or have been. It's past action with continuous effect in our lives. 
I was, in a spiritual sense, on the cross with Christ. He says, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives within me. I died to my sin. I died to the law that showed me when I was crucified with Christ, my sin that the law brought me to Christ because the law was powerless to save and sanctify me. He says, when I'm crucified, the law brings me right up to the cross and brings me to the solution. Later on in Galatians, he's going to say it was our tutor, it was our guardian, it was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, but it was powerless to do any more than that. But he says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ. You and I, we radiate Christ through how people observe our behavior. We're radiating Christ from the inside out through our natural talents, through our spiritual gifts, through the unique personality that God has given each and every one of us, along with the character qualities built in through the process of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus. I'm reading through a devotional this year called New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp. And I read this this week. It fits so well here. What Galatians 2.20 means is this. This all means that your life doesn't belong to you anymore. You've been bought with a price. Your mentality, your personality, your emotionality, your physicality, your possessions, and all your relationships belong to you from the Lord for his using. The purpose, so God's people of grace, driven to the throne of grace, so they can reflect his grace in the place where he calls them. That is the crucified life. That is how we live. The life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me. And notice, we do not lose our distinction as a person. As I study Hinduism, and you go through reincarnation and living in the caste system and following those rules, and finally you do moksha, you have freedom, and you go into Brahma, you lose your identity, you're absorbed into Brahman. But that's not the case with us. We maintain our personhood for all of eternity. And we humbly serve him out of love because he gave himself up for us. He laid down his life as a lamb to slaughter. They didn't take his life. Jesus laid laid his life down. John the Baptist describes Jesus as the lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. We do this by faith and not by sight. Christ loved us. He gave himself up for us and his motive for saving grace because he wanted us to have a relationship with him. We're not worthy of it and we did nothing, nothing, nothing to deserve it. This is how we live out our lives, justified in God's sight and bought by the blood of Christ. We come in humility and awe with confidence that God has empowered us through his resurrection power to live for Christ. Paul closes out this chapter with this last thought. Christ died for nothing if the law, not grace, brings justification. Christ died for nothing if the law, not grace, brings justification. Look at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul in verse 21 is saying in essence to Peter, By withdrawing your fellowship from the Gentiles, you're taking your stand with the Jewish legalists and you oppose Christ and his finished work on the cross. The two pillars of the gospel are the grace of God and the death and resurrection of Christ. And on those two pillars that by its very nature 
destroys the reason to observe the law as a means for righteousness with God. To say that you can earn your salvation, earn righteousness through observance of the law, nullifies the grace of God and the need for Jesus to die on the cross. If righteousness comes by keeping the law, the cross was a futile gesture, the biggest mistake in the universe. And as one commentator says, if righteousness comes by law, then Christ died in vain. Law says do, grace says done. Jesus says on the cross in John 19.30, it is finished to tell us die. In Ephesians 2, he says, for by grace you're saved through faith, Paul does. And so our application here is to return to the law after salvation or include it as part of the gospel cheapens the cross and the Christ follower's union with Christ. Doesn't mean there's some really good things. We talked about that earlier, but to depend on that for your righteousness is not part of the gospel. And so why is justification important as we wrap this up? It changes the way we view God. It changes the way we view our lives and our purpose. If we're justified by faith, by grace, not anything we do, or if we are trying to earn righteousness, it changes everything. If we are trying to earn it, it takes away our peace and rest in our souls. It takes away assurance and confidence in our walk with Christ. God never intended for his followers to go back to the law to receive continual acceptance from him. Listen to me, he loves you the same today as he did yesterday, as the day you were born. He loves you the same today as he will tomorrow and on into eternity. His love never changes toward us. And we don't have to do anything to earn it. And each and every morning, he gives us a new measure of grace. As sure as the sun comes up, even if it's cloudy, as sure as the sun comes up, there are new mercies and new grace for us each and every morning, as it reminds us in Lamentations 3. So here's the closing thought of this chapter as a challenge to us. Are you living out the truth of the gospel and enjoying walking in the benefits of salvation, of being justified, standing before God just as if you never sinned. I want to remind you, if you haven't really paid attention much to this message or get nothing else, I want you to listen to these last few moments. I want you to remember this. Even the devil and one atheist know the true gospel of Christ, even if they don't believe it. You might remember in James 2.19, James said, you believe that God is one. Talking about Good, you have head knowledge, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. Folks, Satan and the demons, they know the word of God. They read it, and the reason they shudder is they know where their, what their end's going to be. Cast into a lake of fire for all of eternity at the end of time. And so, remember that during Jesus' fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, Satan quoted scripture. He didn't trust it, and he didn't believe it. Satan knows the word of God, but he doesn't he used it to twist the truth to steer us away from the truth of the gospel. Do you know and accept the true gospel that comes to us revealed by God, given to us by grace, and received through faith without any work or effort on your part? That's the challenge. Now listen to this. This famous atheist, we've all heard of him, Christopher Hitchens, was once interviewed by the Portland Monthly Magazine about his opposition to religion and more specifically, his opposition to Christianity. The minister, listen to this, questioning him, noted that Christianity he opposed in one of his best-selling books was one of the, 
quote, fundamentalist, end quote, variety of Christianity, while she identified herself as a liberal Christian. After explaining that she didn't take the stories of Scripture literally and rejected the atonement of Christ, she asked Christopher Hitchens if he saw a difference between fundamentalist faith and more liberal, or perhaps we would say today progressive religion. His answer was surprising. Listen to what Christopher Hitchens said. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. End of quote. So the devil, and Christopher Hitchens, an atheist, knows the gospel, the true gospel. So it behooves us, why do we try continually as Christians to add to, take away, do anything if they know the truth. Our key thought is this, the key to a true understanding of who God made us to be is found in being accepted by God in his sight just as if we have never sinned. Just as if we have never sinned. So I want you to repeat with me this before we pray. God sees me just as if I never sinned. God sees me just as if I've never sinned. If you're a true believer in Christ, carry that truth with you for the rest of your Christian journey. Don't let Satan bring doubts. We have one thing as human beings. We have what's called a memory. But God, remember, wipes our sin away. And when those memories, when Satan likes to bring those things up, just remind him of his future and where he's going to spend eternity without Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this doctrine of justification. <clears throat> we thank you for the clarity of the gospel. We thank you for Paul being bold enough to stand up and to confront Peter and those other apostles who were uh, moving back into Jewish legalism, moving away from grace through faith salvation. Lord, I pray that you will just help us to revel in the true gospel, to live just as if we've never sinned. Now we know we need to confess our sin. In 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's to keep us in proper relationship with you on this earth. But Lord, I'm grateful that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we'll be judged not for our sin, but our motives, our actions, and our thoughts, and our words. May we carry that truth with us through the rest of our Christian lives, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.